Julie, both you and I are family doctors by training, so therefore we have both delivered babies in our training. Do you remember how many babies you delivered? Oh, geez. I don't know. Probably about 100. I think I had to do a certain amount, and then kind of it was sort of catch as catch can. You do, <laughs> you do, you do have to do a certain amount, and 100 is a lot of babies. Well done. I, yeah. I, I, it seems like it scarred me a lot more than it scarred you, because I remember <laughs> the exact number I did, which was 43. Um, <laughs> Three and, more than you needed to do. <laughs> and, and yeah, you're right. And so, and I, I told, I, we had not had children at this time. So once my wife and I, um, well, I guess once she was pregnant, I told her I will not be delivering any more babies. No, no. babies will be in my hands for the remainder of my life. But you yes, say I that deliver- now, but maybe you're on an airplane someday, or maybe you're, you know, in a at at the United Center. You don't know. Yeah, no, I've retired. I I 43 <laughs> 43 is the number for the rest of my life. I it's tattooed in the in the annals. Um so <laughs> during during your training, so you delivered hundred babies. It's a lot of babies. So you're 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 in a place where a lot of different, you know, obstetricians, family physicians and whatnot. Did you ever work with a midwife? Yes, I did. I had some great experiences with midwives. Um, where where I trained in uh, residency, there's kind of open to midwives and doulas, and it was very collaborative. And I, I'm, but again, I think there's a lot I need to learn about it. So move yeah, forward. Uh, thank, thank you. Permission granted. The um, we worked with midwives a little bit too, but I would say that my environment I don't think was actually nearly as accepting of basically anybody that was not an obstetrician. Hmm. So that included family med- medicine at that time. Eh. So um, I think like many things in medicine, there's a lot of confusion around midwives, kind of like who are they? What do they do? Where did they come from? Who can use them? <laughs> who should use them? Like, do they have good outcomes? Can I deliver in a hospital with a midwife? I've seen midwives in hospitals, but like, well, do I still need a doctor if I'm in a hospital? Anyways, lots of questions that, frankly, I don't all know all the answers to either. And so um, I think we're going to focus on midwives today. So I want to give out some interesting background stats um, that I found from the American College of Nurse Midwives as of April 2022. I thought these were interesting numbers. There's approximately 13,500 nurse midwives in the United States. So when you talk about the different types of midwives, there are CNMs, which are certified nurse midwives. They're licensed independent healthcare providers, and they have prescriptive authority, meaning that they can prescribe and, and, and act as providers in all 50 states, as well as District of Columbia, American Samoa, if you are there, Guam, Puerto Rico, and the U.S. Virgin Islands. So there's also two other types of midwives. There's certified midwives and then certified professional midwives. And I think we're going to learn more about the differences between these. But ultimately, these are midwives who don't have the nursing degree. And they are licensed independent healthcare providers who complete the same midwife education as the nurse midwives. They just don't have the nursing degree and they're authorized to practice in different areas. So like certified midwives, from what I can tell, can practice in eight states in the District of Columbia and then certified professional midwives are um, licensed in 28 states. So you'd kind of have to see which one in your state. And you may notice that different degrees are in different states. Um, So as of 2019, midwives attended around 10% of all U.S. births. So, I mean, like that's not an insignificant number. So I think understanding kind of what goes on with midwives is pretty important if one in 10 babies is being delivered by a midwife. And then in addition to attending births, um, midwives do a lot more than that. I think we sometimes make the assumption that they're doing birth only, but 76% of nurse midwives identified reproductive care as something that they do on a regular basis, as well as, uh, you know, almost 50% of them identified primary care as a responsibility in their full-time positions. So, you know, this could include annual exams, writing writing prescriptions, basic nutrition counseling, parenting education, patient education, reproductive health visits. So obviously there's a wide breadth of what a midwife does. And so I am interested to learn more. How about you? I am way interested. And to throw back to your series of questions a second ago, you asked, uh, where do they come from? It mm-hmm. kind of harkens back to where do babies come from? Where yeah. do midwives come from? Different storks. Um, so this is all interesting information. It still leaves a lot of questions. So today we're going to bring on a certified professional midwife to give us the scoop. Awesome. Let's do it. Welcome to your doctor friends, the show that teaches you to sniff out the garbage and answers all the questions that you wish you could call or text your doctor friend. My name's Julie Bruni. And I'm Jeremy Allen. And we are two physicians who work at a nationally ranked practice and take care of some of the world's greatest athletes. We know that you have questions and we want to help. We want to be your doctor friends. 
So for clarity and inclusivity's sake, in this episode about midwifery, we frequently use women or women in reference to pregnant and delivering people, but we acknowledge that not all pregnant people are women. Okay, let's get right into learning about midwives by bringing on our guest, Robin Lamori. Robin is an experienced and passionate childbirth educator, doula, lactation consultant, fertility coach, and midwife. She is dedicated to helping families in their journey of preconception, pregnancy, childbirth, and breastfeeding. She is the mother of three children and lives in Arizona, and she's a strong believer in the power of knowledge and education to the impact of lives of women and their families. In addition to her professional work, she's also the founder of Making Mommies, which is an online fertility coaching program that helps women understand their bodies, fertility signs, uncover root causes of infertility, and aids in achieving pregnancy without medical interventions, which is super cool. So Robin, welcome to the podcast. Hi, thanks for having me. Um, We did a brief orientation in the intro, kind of some background stuff, but let's just start at the most basic here. Like, what is a midwife? So at the most basic level, a midwife is just a trained health professional who primarily serves healthy women during labor, delivery, and the postpartum period. Cool. And what what's kind of the history of midwives? Like, did they come around five years ago or they've been around since the, <laughs> since the pilgrims or like, where are we they, at here? They've been around a while. So some of the earliest writings about midwives actually goes back to the days of Moses. And in the Old Testament, it talks about the Hebrew midwives delivering Moses. So I think there are several mentions of midwives in ancient Jewish texts. Um, ancient Egypt and the Roman Empire also seemed to have midwives as well. They didn't use that word, but they had a custom of women helping women in childbirth and, and Native American groups did as well. Um, So I think the idea of a midwife has been around in many communities for thousands of years. It's interesting. So just real quick, do we know where the term midwife even comes from? I don't know. It means with woman, uh, but I'm not sure where that came from. I mean, I guess that that with with women makes sense, I guess, in this situation. Very cool. Um, So we're in the United States. Um, You know, we can talk about how midwives are used across the world, but the majority of our listeners, vast, vast, vast majority are in the United States. So maybe talk about the roles that midwives play here in the United States. Well, it's really interesting because in the 1800s, physicians began to want to kind of expand their practice into obstetrics and childbirth. And basically, they saw this as like a lucrative opportunity, right, to establish relationships with local families. In fact, I remember one of my midwifery textbooks talked about a Harvard physician in like 1820, maybe, who wrote a whole article about, hey, physicians need to get involved in midwifery to secure additional business income. Um, And then at the beginning, of the 20th century in the United States, there was this big push to have your baby in a fancy hospital with a white, educated male doctor. Um, and this narrative was, was kind of sexist, right? It was all these midwives were women, and they argued that women were not smart enough to learn obstetrics, and they weren't pop- properly trained, um, and they were excluded from medical training institutions at the time. I mean, in the South particular, it was kind of a racist motivation as well, because a lot of the birth attendants were black women. And so the message was, you know, come have your baby with a white, educated male doctor. And physicians were kind of pushing for the total abolishment of the midwifery profession in the early 1900s. They were trying to push this narrative that it was was safer to give birth in the hospital. Um, And and that At that time, it was not safer to give birth in the hospital, primarily because um, these physicians were using really dangerous obstetric techniques that had not been thoroughly studied, um, and these interventions were causing infection, and they didn't do a great job of keeping the sick patients in the hospital separated from the laboring mothers at the time. Uh, So it was interesting, the the push there, trying to say, well, these white male doctors are better. Yeah. It kind of feels like there may have been some success there because it seems like in this yes. different in in this current environment we think of having a baby as being with a physician, hopefully not necessarily just a white male physician. Although I think that that has its own podcast uh, yeah. episode <laughs> behind it, but but it does feel like the natural thing is now to think, oh, you're not going with a doctor. That's strange. So it seems like they mm-hmm. obviously yeah. made made strides with this. Yeah. So it's really interesting. Um, You know, in 1930, I think 60% of births were still home births. But by 1950, 88% were hospital births. And that's really not that long ago when you think about it. For the majority of human history, home birth has been the norm. And so as midwives were kind of getting squashed, they decided we needed to start organizing and creating training programs to keep this profession alive. 
Uh, and one of my favorite stories is in 1925, a woman named Mary Breckenridge opened the first nurse midwifery training center in Kentucky. And that was kind of the birth of nurse midwifery. And she traveled on horseback to remote homesteads in like the Appalachian Mountains to help moms have their babies. And it became known as the nursing, the Frontier Nursing Service. And in fact, the Frontier Nursing School of Midwifery is still in operation today. That's awesome. I love hearing those stories and hearing those kind of origin stories of when a pioneer kind of brought everything together and decided to create the institution. Because when you were just talking a minute ago, Robin, about at the turn of the century and how the hospital was not the safest place to have really anything. Um, yeah. and, and has anybody watched The Nick? Uh, no. Uh, the HBO series. No. Oh my gosh, it's so, so good. It takes place in the ni- in, in 1900 at the Knickerbocker Hospital in uh, New York. And it is, you can't watch it because no one washes their hands. Yeah, Everything exactly. is disgusting. Um, just going right into surgery, into bowel, and then, you know, mussing their hair. And it's yeah. just awful. So if anybody wants to- We're going to- from an autopsy to catching a baby. Yeah. <laughs> 100%. <laughs> Yes. And just, just everything is swarming with disease. So, yeah. uh, so kudos to that pioneering. Yeah. Nurse. <laughs> yeah. Yep. And then in the seventies, we saw a rise of birth centers. So kind of an alternative, mm-hmm. right? Not home, not hospital. And so the birth center movement also kind of gave rise to these non-nursing midwives, the certified midwife and the certified professional midwife. Yeah. That's amazing. I love, yeah. you know, people seeing a need and where that need is not being met and just deciding to strike out and figure it out and make it themselves, I think is, is amazing. And it, uh, the, the fortitude that these women, um, showed to create that situation is, is unreal. So kudos. Yeah. They, um, so you brought up the difference in the, you know, like that was the development of the non-nursing, um, midwives. So maybe talk about the differences between, like this, you know, the certified nurse midwife versus the certified midwife and certified yes, professional midwife. Yes. So a CNM, a certified nurse midwife, um, has a nursing degree first. So she goes and gets her nursing degree and then goes on to become a midwife. Um, CMs and CPMs, the certified midwife and the certified professional midwife, are very, very similar in that they're doing the same midwifery training, but they didn't become a nurse first. And in fact, the CM and the CPM kind of developed around the same time. And it's interesting, the CM is more like an East Coast thing. And the CPM you see more in the Midwest and the West. And I'm kind of like, why can't we get together and just combine these two? Because they're so similar, the CM and the CPM. And then what is the schooling? So maybe talk about like, you know, I doctors go to medical school and PAs go to PA school and nurses go to nursing school. And I think maybe we've had people on in different specialties to kind of explain that. So explain what, oh, and chiropractor, we had the chiropractor episode. We talked about chiropractic school. Like tell us what midwifery school is. Yes. So the CPM and the CM model of training is much more of an apprenticeship where there are still classes that we attend. You know, we're doing the same basic anatomy, physiology, the sciences, chemistry, things like that. But then we're also doing very specific midwifery courses as well as apprenticeships. So I did four years of essentially shadowing a midwife in different settings, in the birth center setting, in the home birth setting, and kind of starting off as an observer and then slowly gaining more and more responsibilities until I was essentially acting as a the midwife, just still under supervision of the licensed midwife. So it's a much more hands-on training, I think, than... Um, the, the nurse midwives still do hands-on training going into the hospitals, but it's often a much shorter rotation. It's like a 14 or 15 weeks that they kind of throw them in the deep end and say, go catch as many babies as you can, mm-hmm. um, where the certified professional midwife is doing less hours, but over like a longer period of time, if that makes sense. Yeah. So like to finish the schooling, do you have to hit like a certain amount of hours and take a test? And yes, do all this, like- exactly. So it's a certain number of you know courses and units for the degree, but it's also a certain number of prenatal visits and births and newborn exams and postpartum visits and breastfeeding as well. So, um, one real quick question about schooling and, and all that um, is: what's the the requirements for continuing licensure, or continuing education? Um, every state has like a different, so, so similar to nurses where you kind of do your national exam and then you have to go sit for an exam for the state as well. Mm-hmm. Um, every state is going to have slightly different rules, but for the most part, it's continuing education hours, a certain number of hours or, and, or, you know, you've done a certain number of births, you've worked a certain number of hours training under somebody like, so it's going to vary by state a little bit. 
Got it. And and certainly, um, whether you're a CNM or a CM or a CPM, it's it's expected to maintain that licensure, or else one could not, you know, legally yes. provide these yes. services or collect payment for these services through, you know, payers that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Is that, yep, that absolutely. Correct? Gotcha. Um, one of the things that I've noticed in our early conversation here is we've talked about midwives being women a lot. I would assume that men can be a midwife. Yes, they can. I do know some men midwives, but yeah. on the whole, it's mostly women. Yeah. I mean, I think that makes sense. But also, I think, you know, a lot of what we focus on on the show is accessibility and and making sure that people feel inclusive. And so it would seem like, you know, like if, if a man wanted to be an, a midwife, I want to make sure that we establish that that is it is That's open to thing. everybody. Yes, it is. Yeah, so. absolutely. Thanks. Uh, So just to to pivot a minute, um, why do you think in general do people seek out a midwife versus like a traditional allopathic or osteopathic physician um, to to help them with their their prenatal, postnatal, you know, birth experience? I think people choose a midwife typically because they want a physiological birth with less interventions. Mm The obstetrics model and the midwifery model of care are very different. So OBGYNs are fundamentally trained in in medical school. They're trained surgeons, right? And they're taught to see pregnancy as kind of a condition to be managed. And the midwifery model of care believes that pregnancy and birth is a natural, like it's, it's a physiological process. It's not an illness or a condition. It's something women were designed to do. And so it's just a very different approach. And, and that difference in training, it just kind of impacts everything going forward. So <clears throat> there's some interventions that, you know, midwives can't do. So as a CPM, for example, CNMs can do inductions, but as a CPM, I'm not going to induce any, anyone's birth. That's outside my scope. Um, because at that point, we've seen there's there might be a problem. That's usually why we're inducing, that there's a problem. And so this is now kind of outside the scope of normal, natural, um, completely healthy birth. There's something that needs an intervention. Mm-hmm. That's going to be an OB or a nurse midwife in a hospital setting. Got it. Got it. Yeah. I- midwives are, you know, they're also typically cheaper. Um, it, it kind of creates a community more of like shared decision making. So in a, in a traditional OB office, you have five minute visits and you're trying to get through all these people. At the birth center, I have hour long visits, prenatal visits. And we're really talking about here's all your options and let's make some shared decisions here a little bit more. Um, when COVID hit, we saw a huge influx of mothers wanting to have midwives and home births and birth centers. In fact, our patient load tripled in the first month wow. of COVID because many hospitals at that time were not allowing fathers or doulas in with the mother. And so women were looking for alternatives where they could have their support person with them. I think there was also a perceived risk of contracting COVID by going to the hospital. I don't know how yeah. true that actually was, but I think the perception was there. Yeah. And so they felt more comfortable being out of hospital for their birth. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, we're seeing a, a rise. Like you said, I think it's about 10% last year of, of people who decided to use a midwife. That's awesome. I think that's so fascinating. And I loved you touching on how you spend an hour with someone who, you know, to, you know, to talk about prenatal care and how to plan how their pregnancy and their delivery, you know, how they want it to go. And, um, so yeah, let's just take for an example. Um, I don't have children. I'm not having children, but let's pretend I was. Yeah. So let's pretend I'm, so I'm 38 years old. Um, and I come to you, Robin, because I'm pregnant and I want to talk about, you know, the next year of my life. Yeah. Uh, plus, you know, yeah. um, what kind of things would you like walk me through just briefly kind of how you would set up this appointment for the first time that we've ever met each other about, you know, kind of how you would outline things for me and how we would have that discussion. Yeah. So if you came to me, I would say, hey, we got to consider what kind of provider you want. Do you want a midwife or an OBGYN? And I think people start there. They think, oh, well, should I have a doctor? Should I have a midwife? Mm -hmm. But I'm going to say, actually, I think the first question you need to ask is where are you going to feel safest giving birth? Mm -hmm. Because that's going to kind of guide what kind of midwife or what kind of provider you're going to have. There are women who are absolutely terrified of having a baby in the hospital. They don't like hospitals. They don't want to go there. There are women who would feel very afraid not being in a hospital. And so you have to decide, okay, where am I going to feel the most comfortable giving birth? Because we Mm -hmm. do know that fear can actually impact the labor progression. And so now that you've chosen your place of birth, now you can say, okay, who delivers there? If you want a home birth or a birth center birth, pretty much going to have to have a midwife. Um, There are 
I think two OBGYNs who do out of hospital birth, I can think of off the top of my head. Um, or if you're going to be in a hospital, okay, now you can do the midwife or the OB. What am I most comfortable with? And then you would talk to your insurance. If if money was a factor, you'd want to contact your insurance and be like, who's in network? Um, not all insurances are going to cover all providers, obviously. And then I want you to go meet with that provider and make sure that you feel really comfortable with them and um, make sure that they can handle any pre-existing conditions that you have. If you have something like diabetes or hypertension or you know, weird clotting disorders or, or whatever it is, you want to make sure that you're with a provider that's going to be able to address those issues. Mm-hmm. And for the most part, if you've got a, a significant pre-existing condition, you need to be with an OB. Mm-hmm. Um, that's what they're for. We need them for that. If you if you don't if you're a healthy woman, you don't have any of those pre existing conditions, then a mid, midwife might be a great option. But instead of looking at you know OBs and midwives, I always tell women, who do you feel comfortable with? Like who do you connect with? If you go to a provider and you don't feel a connection with them. Go find another provider until you find someone you are comfortable with. Yeah, that's great advice. You hit on so many things there. So first of all, are midwives generally covered by insurance the same way a provider is? So again, again, the answer is always this varies by state. Um, So typically a hospital birth with a CNM is going to be, you can find somebody in network with your insurance. Mm. Out of hospital birth and home birth is another subject entirely. The vast majority of insurance is not going to cover home birth. Birth center can kind of go different. Some of them are, some of them aren't. Mm-hmm. So that's a conversation with your insurance company. So, and then, so if somebody walks in and wants to use your services and they want a home birth that maybe isn't covered by insurance, then it's more of like a cash-based thing. They're like, here's our services. Yes. Here's how much it costs. Here's what to expect, that kind of thing. Yeah. And the crazy thing is, is that a oftentimes a woman can go pay out of pocket for a home birth and it's cheaper than with their insurance in a hospital. Because a hospital, a vaginal birth in a hospital, the national average is like fifteen to twenty thousand dollars. And then obviously depending what your insurance is and coverage and deductible, what you pay ranges. Whereas home birth is like four or five thousand yeah. dollars. So there's a big price difference. Yeah, we've seen that a lot with hospital care in general, right? I mean, even in sports medicine, orthopedics, the goal is to get people out of hospitals just because it costs more and the <laughs> the risks sometimes are, are higher. Yeah. One of the other things you mentioned in there that I wanted to hit on was having pre-existing conditions. So people who have like diabetes or maybe have had a birth before that had a medical thing, can nurse midwives or do nurse midwives handle those patients? Or if somebody has some sort of risk factor at that point, they're recommended to COBs. It kind of depends on the specific risk factor, and it also depends on the state because the state also writes laws about what midwives can and cannot do as far as pre-existing conditions. So let's take um, diabetes, for example. If you had well-controlled type 1 or type 2 diabetes, you might be able to see a midwife. If your diabetes was severe or it wasn't well-controlled, well, then you probably need to be with an OBGYN. So again, it's going to be a state-by-state basis. condition by condition basis and really how well you're doing managing that condition. You mentioned before that if somebody were to have like need an induction or whatnot and they had done all their prenatal care with a midwife and then they're at that point they maybe need an OBGYN. Does do midwives work with OBGYNs? Do they have some sort of like you guys are independent licensed clinicians, so you don't need an OBGYN, but like how does that relationship work? So in some states, CNMs are required to work under or closely with an OBGYN, um, but most states, they're not. They're independent, right? So this could be seen as kind of one of the downsides of choosing a midwife is that if you do develop a condition in pregnancy, maybe you get gestational hypertension, right? You get high blood pressure in pregnancy. Um, you might have to transfer care. And so this relationship that you've built with a provider so far is going to be transferred to a a new person. And so that is one of the potential downsides of going with a midwife. If you do need more advanced care, you're going to have to change providers. Most midwives have OBs that they work closely with, that they have transfer agreements with. So it's a relatively smooth process, but you are meeting a new person. Yeah, that was, it's almost exactly the question I was going to ask Jeremy, but really I think, uh, Robin, your answer was helpful because it led me to another question is, is logistically, how much do you see co-management? Uh, like, I mean, wouldn't that be the ideal? It kind of reminds mm-hmm. me like, for example, in our practice, we have, 
um, a bunch of spine surgeons who are fantastic, but then they wanted to reach out and hire um, Tom Lotus, our chiropractor, who's a McKenzie specialist, because they saw a need there and they can help co-manage patients. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I don't know how often you're seeing that between an MDDO type provider like a OBGYN or a family medicine physician co-managing with, with a midwife. Does that happen very often? So I work at a birth center here in Arizona, and we actually have an OB that we can transfer to and help co-manage. And I think it's an awesome model to get these two different professions working together. Um, And it's a great question to ask any midwife that you work with, especially in an out-of-hospital setting, be it a birth center or a, a home birth, is, hey, what is your transfer rate? Because if we're doing a really good job as an out of hospital midwife, we are screening our people to make sure that they are really good fits for this type of birth. This out of hospital birth is not for everyone. You need to be a good candidate and we need to be doing a good job of screening that. So we see a really low incidence of transfer. I think last year our transfer rate was like five to seven percent because we're making sure they're a good candidate before we let them come into the practice. And we're also educating them about how to have a healthy pregnancy, Mm -hmm. exercise and, you know, prenatal vitamins and diet and stress reduction and all that stuff Mm -hmm. really helps them stay in a low risk situation. So I just I have I have curiosities about some of the the screening questions and 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 the tools that you use to screen. So like going back to like I'm I'm potentially your patient, Robin. So I'm 38. I would be considered advanced maternal age. I love that. It's the, the elderly <laughs> prima gravita. Yes. I love those old timey terms yes. of like ew, gross. Um, don't we call like me to elderly. say advanced maternal age. <laughs> yeah, that's cuter. That's yeah. it's cuter. Um, so yeah, like what kind of tools are there? Validated tools that you would you utilize to like ask me questions or is there a questionnaire that I would fill out or like, how do you, how do you get that information from me? And, um, you know, like what are the, what are the general questions that I would, what information would you need for me to determine whether or not I was at a higher risk and you felt like I wouldn't be a great fit for, um, pursuing, you know, a, a delivery with a midwife. Yeah. So first of all, we're going to take a complete medical history. So I want to know any conditions you've had. I want to know any about any prior pregnancies, if there were any issues with those pregnancies or deliveries, because that's going to give me a lot of information. Um, and then in pregnancy, the midwives and do the same tests as the OBGYN. So we yeah. are offering the same things. We're still say, hey, let's do the anatomy scan at 20 weeks. We're still doing, you know, gestational diabetes at 28 weeks. We're doing the urine dipstick to check for ketones in the urine and all of that stuff. It's the same kind of testing process that you would have in an OBGYN's office. Rad. You hit on some of the things uh, like cost and whatnot, but like on the whole and the transfer rate, but on the whole, do midwives have pretty good outcomes? Yes, they do. I had written some down. Um, research has shown that midwife that midwifery care provides equal or better care outcomes compared to physician care on a lot of metrics, including higher rates of spontaneous vaginal birth, higher rates of breastfeeding, and women report a higher satisfaction with care and overall lower costs. I, I want to put in a tiny caveat there. They do have, midwives do have higher rates of spontaneous vaginal birth and and OBGYNs typically have higher C-section rates, but we have to remember we're not comparing apples Mm -hmm. to apples here because midwives are only taking those healthy low-risk mothers and OBGYNs are taking everybody. So it it doesn't necessarily mean, oh, you'll have a midwife, you won't have a C-section or, oh, you have an OB, you're going to have a higher risk of a C-section just because we're not starting off with the same sample size of, or sample type, if that makes sense. It's a really good point. I had a, when, so we work with family physician, we're both family physicians, so we had to deliver babies. Right. And so the person who was in charge of our, um, obstetrical training as a family physician in my residency was the only one in our practice who did Mm C-sections. So anytime that there was a family practice woman who needed a C-section, this physician did that C-section. So her C-section rate was like crazy high, <laughs> Yeah, but like 95%, she yeah. was also like one of the most caring, wonderful, like yeah. spontaneous vaginal birth, all of the stuff you want in a provider. But so yeah, the, everything is not in the stats, which I think was a good point. There. Yeah. It's, it's a, it's selection bias right there. Yeah. And, and that's, that, that's a, a testament to proper screening and proper categorization of which person um, which pregnant, where, where the pregnant person should be seeking their care, you know? And so I think that just means, you know, Robin, that you're doing a good job in screening people to see what's the most appropriate 
provider for them. So I love it. I think that's I a think great to point. add some of my own bias to this, um, having had been on the side of delivering some babies and then also we being through two of my wife's own, I, I just feel like <laughs> in hospitals in general, we monitor so much and it is just not a relaxing environment no. at all. The <laughs> no, vast God, majority no. of the time you're there, you're just waiting for something to go wrong because there's just all this beeping and moving yes. and like people constantly checking on you. And yeah. like, you're just kind of like, somebody's going to walk in and tell me something's wrong. That's the <laughs> feeling you have the whole time. And then having been on the provider side, you're in this room that has all these monitors going. It feels like you're in a cardiac ICU, but it's actually yeah. like probably should be the happiest place in the hospital. So like, yeah. I do think the tendency is to be more interventional because of all the data we get. And I think that that's been proven out in data. I'm quoting data that's not sitting in front of me, but I think yeah, the concept no. is, yeah. would be is the more data we have, the more monitoring well, we're yes. doing, the more likely we want to do things. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's interesting. So I don't have all the stats in front of me either, but the the introduction of continuous electronal fetal monitoring, right? We hook mom up and we listen to every single heartbeat that baby has through the entire labor. And the thought was, well, this is going to um, reduce neonatal deaths. And it really hasn't. What it has done, it's increased cesarean rates. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It, I, I can... I will say that the hospital we delivered at did a good job of allowing intermittent monitoring and whatnot. But still, like, mm -hmm. I just... Having been on the provider side of it, too, it's just it's one of my least favorite places in the hospital. Again, I'm putting my own bias on this completely, but it just kind of feels like it should be the happiest place, but it just kind of feels like everybody's on edge waiting for something bad to happen. Mm -hmm. um, and I, oh, I hate that feeling so much. Well, yeah. And, and, and I think because we're breaking down biases here, which is a big part of this podcast, which is like, okay, now we're, now we have providers that have seen bad things happen. And so now, or maybe that just happened to them. Maybe there was a bad outcome and, they were glad that they had the monitoring because they were able to intervene. So now they have recency bias that now everything's going to seem like it could be a bad outcome. So let's let's over monitor everything and not, you know, not understanding that there could be a complication or a or a. Uh, unforeseen, not great outcome because we're looking too hard. And it's so difficult to figure out what's the Goldilocks zone. Yeah. There. yeah. Of, uh, if intervening just enough so that we can pretend, you know, uh, potentially intervening when it's necessary. Yeah. Uh, disastrous outcomes or things that harm people um, versus creating a, a, a problem because we're also worried all the time. Yeah. It, it's, it's very tricky. Yeah. And on that note, I think it's important to talk about midwifery and outcomes in other countries because yeah. other countries didn't have quite the same attack on midwives that the U.S. did in the early 1900s. And so we see midwives heavily utilized in places like Europe, Canada, Australia. Um, for example, there's like 30,000 midwives in the U.K. alone. And Kate Middleton gave birth with a midwife and no one batted an eye because that's just <laughs> normal there. Mm -hmm. um, in New Zealand, I think New Zealand has the highest percentage of midwife births. I think 80% of births are managed by midwives in New Zealand. And New Zealand has one of the lowest maternal death rates in the world. Finland, Greece, Iceland, Poland, they are also super low maternal death rates. And they all have 75% or more of their births attended by midwives. In fact, some countries, you can't even go see an OBGYN unless you have a pregnancy complication. Uh, they only take high-risk mothers. And so all pregnancies start off with midwifery care, and they only transfer to a physician if there's a, if there's a problem that's outside of their scope. And this, I mean, it saves huge amounts of money for families, insurance companies, and state-sponsored healthcare programs. But it also seems to, it's, you know, it's a correlation, not causation, but it seems to produce better outcomes. Mm -hmm. Um and what I love is, is places like Australia, France, Germany, Norway. Not only is midwifery care the norm, but midwives make frequent postpartum home visits, as, mm. and it's covered by insurance. Sometimes they're checking on these babies and moms daily in the first few weeks, which is just unheard of in the U.S. Also invaluable. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And conversely, do you happen to know just off the top of your head uh, where the U.S. ranks in their mater maternal and fetal? You know, I want to say we're in. We are the most dangerous industrialized <laughs> country to give birth, and we're like fortieth or something. I think it's safer to give birth in Afghanistan. Yeah, so that's an interesting so, step. There. I had a feeling that was going to be the way that this would go. <laughs> yeah, it's something that needs to change. Absolutely. Sure. Um, I thought I had written down some some stats because I was like, that's going to be interesting. I want to say, oh, I want to say that it's like 
23 uh, maternal deaths per 100,000 births in the U.S. And New Zealand is like one or two per 100,000. So just insane. Yeah. And you can even break that down further. We know with like, um, you know, people of color and people without, you know, in poverty, it gets even worse, which is just kind of crazy. I found it. It's uh, in 2020, per the CDC, uh, there were 23.8 maternal deaths per 100,000 births. And in New Zealand, it was 1.7 maternal deaths per 100,000 births. Yeah. Uh, so France is beating us. Canada, the UK, I mean, any developed nation has better outcomes. And we spend more money than all of those mm-hmm. yes. uh, countries as well. It, it's really a, an issue that we need to be paying more attention to and trying to figure out how we can looking at countries like New Zealand and the UK and what are they doing mm-hmm. um, to get better outcomes? Yeah. I mean, it's mirrored in every other thing too, diabetes and high oh, blood yeah. pressure and, and all of these things. It's, it's, it, it, that, that those stats are mirrored everywhere. Um, you know, looking at your bio, Robin, you, you, you've done the doula thing, the lactation consultant, you've started your own business. You clearly believe and advocate for, for these sort of things. A, a lot of these roles involve advocacy. Like what made you want to do midwifery? So I wanted to become a midwife because of my own birth experience. Mm. So I had three vastly different births. My first pregnancy, I just found an OBGYN in network with my insurance and it was your typical, you know, five minute visit. And then at 39 weeks, they did an ultrasound and they said, well, your baby's big. So we want to induce you which that's not actually supported by ACOG. Um, ACOG Mm -hmm. is the American College of Obstetrics and Gynecology, and they produce, you know, practice guidelines for OBGYNs. Their position is that ultrasound is really not a reliable way to estimate fetal weight. Mm -hmm. So they, and they also don't support induction for a suspected big baby. So it was just not a good decision. Uh, I was induced in the hospital at 39 weeks. Um, this this was 2008, so this was a while ago, and I'm thankful things have changed. I, I have seen improvements in the hospital since then, but it was a long induction, and baby did not tolerate the pitocin, and there were so there were wonky heart rate issues, and so I had a cesarean, which in hindsight was completely unnecessary. Um, And I was told by my provider, all right, well, once a C-section, always a C-section. So for my second, I had a scheduled cesarean, which again is not backed by ACOG practice guidelines. Mm -hmm. Um, And what I didn't know at the time was that my doctor had a 45% C-section rate. And the hospital I was at had a 64% C-section rate, which is just insane. The World Health Organization says we should be at like 10 to 15%. So that's Mm -hmm. just way too high. Mm -hmm. And I think the lesson here, and this is backed by the research, is your choice of care provider is actually the biggest factor in maternal and fetal outcomes. And so it was around this time that I watched a documentary called The Business of Being Born, which I highly recommend. Mm -hmm. And so my third birth was actually a VBAC, which stands for a vaginal birth after cesarean. And it was at a freestanding birth center with a midwife. And The difference in my experience was night and day just by hiring a different provider, a provider that I really clicked with and who really wanted to educate and support me. Uh, We had hour long prenatal appointments and we talked about exercise and nutrition and I had a water birth and I went home three hours after my baby was born and slept in my own bed. And I had a weekly postpartum visits and help with breastfeeding. And I really call it my redeeming birth. And I wanted to be able to offer this experience to women because there's really not that many birth centers out there. Mm -hmm. Um, And I don't want to get down on OBGYNs. We need them. I work closely with them. I'm thankful for them. There are great ones out there, but mine was not. And um, the midwife was, was just a wonderful fit for me personally. Uh, and I think the majority of women who are coming to at least my birth center, they, they do so because they had a bad experience at the hospital, unfortunately. And that needs to change. Um, I want to see midwives and OBs work together to produce better outcomes for women. It's a really powerful story, uh, Robin. Um, and I think a lot of people end up in their situations based on personal experiences. I Just to reflect a little bit on Julie and my own situation with, we do sports medicine, but one of, one of the biggest factors that creates kind of the health and wellness um, um, nonsense that we see out there in terms of like all of the crap that people are selling and whatever is because people have poor experiences with physicians mm. and, and don't feel trusted that mm-hmm. they can trust the doctor, the doctor's willing to see them as a whole person or all of those 
situations. And so it creates this opportunity for people to go off and create what is called a different form of medicine, but it's basically just a bunch of garbage, but it gives people hope that they are being treated differently. And so I think what you're describing is present in every other field of medicine, and it needs to be on us as a medical community and as physicians to try to bridge that gap. I think what is so honorable about what you guys are doing in terms of the way that you, you know, midwives and, and, and OBGYNs and, you know, basically prenatal care versus what we see in sports medicine is that, you know, like you guys are degreed licensed providers that are providing evidence-based care. And I'm sure that there are people who are not doing that as well. But for the most part, again, we're talking about an alternative for, for women to get a different experience. And I just think exactly. that that's really powerful. Well, and it builds a relationship. I mean, this is a really pivotal point in a woman's yeah. life. This is a huge experience. I, I always say a woman's going to remember her wedding day and the day she gave birth and the way she's treated. It just has lifelong implications. And so I want to build a relationship with my clients where they feel, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm like friends with them at the after yeah. we've had this baby, you know, because I spent so much time with them and I've gotten to know them and they know that I care. It reminds me of uh, when I feel like everybody has their their birth stories that like your parents tell you yes. about like, well, the day you were born, the doctor yeah. came in and said this, you know, and usually it's some ridiculous thing that some jerk in the background said that was like, and then that medical student uh, farted yeah. <laughs> and it was insane, you know, or it's, it made me really mind my P's and Q's when I would be in a birth experience with families to be like, don't say something weird or awkward mm -hmm. or dumb because they're going to write about this in their in their family books. Yeah. And, yeah. and I like to ask when they come in for postpartum visits, yeah. I like to say, hey, I was at your birth, obviously, yeah. but you have a different experience than I did. I'd love to hear about how you experienced your birth. Yeah. And have a conversation because they'll say things that I just didn't even realize or didn't know was going to be a big deal. Or, you know, like you said this and that was just amazing. And I'm like, oh, yeah. okay. You know, it helps me be a better that, that provider. That's great to hear. I'm always worried that I'm going to hear the opposite of like, remember when you said that weird ass thing that sucked? Right? It was like, right. yeah, can I delete that part of the whole interaction, please? Maybe that's just me. You, you hit on one of the most common things that I feel that I am asked outside of straight medical questions. This podcast is called Your Doctor Friends because we get reached out to all the time. It's like, can you answer this question? I'm having this symptom. But one of the most common things I am asked is, who should I go see? Mm -hmm. um, and you mentioned you went and found an OBGYN because it was in network with your insurance and you thought you were doing the right things, but you didn't necessarily know to look up specific stats or kind of understand what about the provider. And it's so difficult as a patient to understand who's good and who's bad. It's not, you know, like the the ability to go on Google and find health grades and see what stars people have is just not applicable to doctors. And the vast majority of time, it's word of mouth that people do it. And I just don't understand how the person who has no connections does this because I just, you know, Julie, myself, and I would assume for you too, Robin, that because we have a pulse on these situations and we understand what to look for in providers and kind of some red flags and things, or we can ask around, we're able to make good recommendations or treat our own family in that way. This is a long intro to me asking you the question, like if somebody decided they were going to go find a midwife, do you have advice on how they would maybe start that search? Yeah. So, you know, first of all, if you're on a budget, try and find somebody in network. So contact your insurance, get a list of, you know, who is in network. Again, I talked about where are you more comfortable giving birth? So figure out what environment we're talking about, hospital, birth center, home. So that's going to also dictate your provider. Uh, and then call their office and chat with them. You know, when you call, is the receptionist like happy to be talking with you or Whoa. is she, you know, really busy? I mean, that tells a lot about a practice, unfortunately. Um, and also, I think there needs to be a conversation. Go in and meet that provider and see how you connect with them. Uh, see if the rapport is there and ask specific questions. Hey, what's your C-section rate? What's your episiotomy rate? Most are not doing episiotomies. She should say, you know, or he or she should say, I don't, I don't do episiotomies unless whatever, you know, a medically indicated reason. Um, hey, have you ever lost a mom or a baby? They should be willing to talk about that. And just because they have had a maternal or a fetal death does not make them a bad doctor or a bad midwife, but they shouldn't 
take this defensive attitude. They should be willing to talk about, yeah, I had this case and this was how we managed it and this happened. I, I just, I would hope that they would be transparent with you. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if you don't connect with them, then go find another provider until you find someone that you connect with. Because like I said, you're going to remember this birth and you've got to have someone that you really trust. And then in terms of making sure that you're getting somebody high quality or certified, is that looking for the degree and then looking like like researching that person? Yeah. So, I mean, states are going to be paying attention. There's not usually going to be somebody practicing who doesn't have a license. But just because they are licensed by the state does not mean they're high quality. I mean, the, the OB that I had, she was licensed and in good standing, but that didn't lead to very good maternal outcomes. And so I I think just going and meeting with them is, is it sounds so simple, but it's really invaluable. Yeah. You sparked a question for me um, that maybe goes back earlier, but one of the biggest um, complaints these days about the experience when delivering a baby is that they may not have their own physician because you mm-hmm. basically it's whoever's on call that day. Yeah. Um, and cause we have to consider the quality of life of the provider, I guess a little bit too. Right. But at yeah. the end of the day, like it's hard to go in and be like, I'm delivering my baby and I'm seeing, I'm meeting this person for the first time. They mm-hmm. do encourage you to go meet all the other OBs during your prenatal stuff. How does that work with midwives is yeah. the same concept. Yeah. So home birth midwives, many home birth midwives, that's only them. And they, that burnout is really high because they are on call 24 seven and they don't take that many clients. They take three, maybe four clients a month. Um, So they really can give very individualized care and you know, they're going to be the one at your birth. Birth centers typically have a couple of midwives. um, So birth centers in this area have two or three. And so it's pretty easy to rotate between those two or three midwives when you go in for your visits and know, okay, I'm getting one of these two or one of these three people. Large OB practices, it can be really hard because they might have, there's there's practices here that have 10, 12 OBs. Mm-hmm. Uh, and additionally may have midwives as well in the practice. Like you just don't know who you're going to get. And so if it's really important to you that you have a certain provider, I would recommend going with a smaller practice. There are OBs that are just two OBs in the practice. There are birth centers that are just one or two midwives. Uh, and so if that's something you really want, then you've got to plan for that. Cool. Robin, talk about um, making mommies. Oh, <laughs> right on cue. Right. So cute. <laughs> that's Logan. I love it. <laughs> yeah. Talk about making mommies. So when I was working in home birth and birth center environments, we had a surprising number of women who would come in and they would say, I'm trying to get pregnant. I've been trying for two, three, four months haven't been able to get pregnant. And I want to know what I can do to help improve my fertility and my chances of conception. Because in the United States, you know, a lot of assisted reproductive clinics will not even see you until you've been trying for 12 months. And a lot of insurance companies won't cover anything until you've been trying for 12 months, which I understand. But there's also been an amazing amount of research done in the last 17 to 20 years talking about natural ways diet, lifestyle, exercise, stress, ways to make lifestyle changes to increase your fertility, increase your chances of conception. And so I feel like there's this gap in women's Mm -hmm. healthcare right now where you go to your OB or even your midwife and they say, yeah, try for 12 months. And then, you know, if that doesn't work, then we'll go in for a bunch of testing and do IVF. And I'm glad we have IVF. Some women truly need that, but Mm -hmm. I would love to see a growing uh, pocket of, of healthcare where we coach these women. That's why I say I'm a fertility coach. I'm like, hey, what can we be doing in these 12 months to maximize your chances of conception so that hopefully you don't need IVF? Or if you do need IVF, you've made all these lifestyle changes to be in the best possible place to have a great success with IVF. And so I do things like nutritional counseling, and we talk about fertility awareness method and how to chart your cycles and how the hormones of the cycle work how to do a at-home semen analysis and all this stuff so that they can kind of take that fertility journey into their own hands. That's awesome. I mean, I think we're all about empowerment here and what we can, how we can make folks feel more comfortable in advocating for themselves. Because as we know, there are huge barriers to getting access in healthcare. There's monetary barriers. There's physical barriers of getting to see a provider there's a lot of uh, misinformation barriers that are that that just because there's you know we live in a very 
uh, an embarrassment of riches when it comes to online information. And sometimes it can be very difficult to figure out what is a reputable source and what is marketing. Yeah. And I think it's it's so great to give people questions that they can ask their providers and give people questions that they can ask themselves and, and know what's what's a reputable, validated source of information. And And I just love hearing you give actionable items and bullet points to folks because I think it all can get very tangled in the weeds of like, wouldn't it be great if we could just do this? And then it's like, no, 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 we're doing it. And here's how to do it. So go do mm-hmm. it. And it's yeah, okay. It's, it's very analogous to when we tell people like, you should go eat healthy. And they're like, well, what yeah. the hell does that mean? And if yeah. I go Google that, like 7,000 yeah. I don't know. And now up, you're and on like, your own. And like, yeah. to be honest, as physicians, sometimes we're like, I don't even know what that means, to be honest. <laughs> just Can you just go do it? That's what we're supposed to do. And so when you're right. talking about like, uh, a lot of times the counseling when you're like, I want to get pregnant. What should I do? And you're like, I don't know. Go have a bunch of sex for 12 months and come back if it didn't work. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. Um, and, not, and again, not always like, helpful. <laughs> yeah. And for a lot of people that helps or, and it leads to pregnancy. But, you know, I guess, I guess the concept would be is taking more ownership of your healthcare and kind of understanding and getting some education is always really, really, really nice. So yeah, and very cool what job. you're doing. Yeah. It's our job to provide that platform you know, as physicians, as healthcare providers, as people that are, by and large, our first job is educators. And so if, if we're forgetting that part of it, then no one feels comfortable advocating for themselves because mm-hmm. it's like if I went and talked to a financial advisor, <laughs> I would be like, I don't know what a spreadsheet is. So I think it's, I think it's great to, to focus on that. How do they follow you or uh, see what you're doing or or even look up Making Mommies? Yeah, the website is makingmommies.com. And I'm also on Instagram. It's making underscore mommies. And yeah, I would love to help anybody who just wants to, to learn. It's all just about educating and equipping women to kind of take their fertility into their own hands. I love it. Well, this, this has been an awesome uh, episode, Robin. We really appreciate the time coming on. Um, you know, Robin t- uh, reached out to us after listening to some episodes and, and had really appreciated what was going on with, with the work we're doing. And so the hope is, is that we can continue to work with Robin and talk more about what she does even past her degrees and understanding what uh, people do with these things. Um, but it's a great intro to, to you and, and, and what's going on in this area. My takeaway is it seems like midwives have been around forever and have been doing this really, really well. And uh, uh, general hospital-based births that we view today are actually not the norm and came in and butted their way in. And so my takeaway for our listeners is you have choice with your birth experience. Ask your doctor friends. <laughs> the amazing music is credited to Skillcell with Pixabay licensure. The podcast is meant for educational and entertainment purposes only. The contents of this podcast should not be taken as medical advice to treat any medical condition in either yourself or others. Please consult a medical professional for any medical issues that you may be having. The contents of this podcast are the opinions of the hosts only and do not reflect the opinions of their employers or affiliations. This entire disclaimer also applies to any guests or contributors to the podcast. Under no circumstances shall Dr. Julie Bruni or Dr. Jeremy Allen or any guest to the podcast be responsible for damages arising from use of the podcast.